no one ever says audio is king, you know? It's always content. Welcome to the Thought Feeder Podcast. I am Joel Goodman. With me is John Steven Stansel. This is episode 12, and we have a great guest with us, one of my good friends, Ron Bronson. If you don't know him, I don't know where you've been. Well, you probably just you're probably new to the scene in the last couple of years, but you should know him in any case. Ron, thanks for being here. We really appreciate it and we're looking forward to talking with you. Well, you know, JS, I haven't seen a real life yet. So it's like this is this is gonna have to work in the corona era. For me to hang out with him <laughs> and you now you know you need if you ever call i'm always there so really excited to be here i've been listening to your podcast a bit and of course naturally astounded by the uh, the beautiful audio quality <laughs> of, of your of your startup podcast but also <laughs> the content's been really good too no one ever says audio is king you know it's always content it's true but it, no it's it's you listen to a nice podcast you're like ah oh, that, that that's that's just i can listen to this this is a good sound but I knew better. So Ron, for the folks that do not know who you are, um, what should they know about you? I What do I do? Um, so prior to the last uh, five years, I spent a decade working so across higher ed in a, in a variety of roles, sort of broadly around digital strategy. At a time when those things, you know, the beginning of the time I was doing that, those things were sort of still emerging, right? Yeah. As higher ed sort of discovered everything late, they're like, oh, digital strategy. Oh, what is UX? As, as Oh, search design. That sounds interesting. As higher ed discovered these things, I was sort of always trying to, you know, they're in the front of the line in some of those roles. So I've been all over the country, inhabiting those roles, worked at all kinds of schools, big and small. And uh, about five-ish, six years ago, pivoted towards working in sort of large-scale digital transformation in government. So not in higher ed anymore, but definitely some fond, uh, fine times. And I mean, government, municipal, wherever, like it's, it's similar. I mean, there's still bureaucracy. There's still totally. Yeah. It translates. It definitely translates. It translates. I did my time with a little bit of government as well. The Texas department of transportation, it's, it's a very similar, but it's got subtle differences in the vibe, but mm-hmm. definitely. So there's some similarities there's some big differences which I like in both ways, but we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. <laughs> so one of the things that you've been talking a lot about, both you know online at, at conferences, non higher ed related, and even you know even going back to when you're in higher ed, you touched on this in, in a lot of different ways. Is the phenomenon? It's not really a phenomenon, but the prevalence of hostile or dark patterns on the web in design and. I'm wondering, like, what are, well, one, maybe just like give us an intro of what you see, you know, how you would define it. But then also, you know, what are some of your, I don't want to say favorite, but <laughs> what are, what are some of the ones that you think are the worst offenders or, you know, make you chuckle at how bad they are sort of a thing, you know, not in a happy way, but yeah. Right. So I think, I think the first caveat to this is, and I have to say this every time I talk about these things now is um, we talk about like sort of broadly around like UX anti-patterns or you know, dark patterns as they're called online, is that the caveat to this is, is that using the term dark and talking about something bad often like perpetuates this idea that dark is bad. And so I try not to use the term dark patterns yeah. as much, but for the purposes of our audience who, who may have heard of these things, but I wanted the caveat that for folks who go out, yeah, who, yeah. who start running around their offices like dark patterns, dark patterns, like maybe, maybe, maybe not, maybe like don't do that. To something else. But that being said, I've been talking about it a lot and over the years, and I think it's evolved because when I first started talking about it, it was really around like sort of UI anti patterns, things like you go on GoDaddy's website 
and it, you know, a thing pops up and it wants you to buy a domain or something because you saw an ad and you, and you think pops up and it tries to deceive you into buying five or six things you didn't need um, because of the way the pattern is designed. Or more recently, something we've all probably dealt with, where you go, you download an app, you log into the app, and as soon as the app starts, it's like, do you love us? Give us five stars. <laughs> like, I just downloaded your stupid app. Why are you asking me to love you? I just met you. <laughs> and um, I have a tweet about that. And it's like me just complaining about it constantly. And then I, I update the tweet every once in a while and add things to it because it just makes me mad. And it's evolved from thinking about things, like I said, like UI anti patterns and thinking more broadly about how sort of hostility in design. I gave a talk last year, Joel was there. Um, and I gave, well, I gave it all over the country, but I gave one in Austin, which is why Joel was there. Joel didn't just follow me around America. Not often. No, it'd be a pretty funny thing if we did that. It'd be a really good, po- it'd be a separate podcast that you all are not here for. It's just me and Joel <laughs> eating food and playing skee-ball all around the world. But in any case, you brought me on as what you get. Anyway, but thinking about how, when you think of things like if you go to a train kiosk, say you're in a big city and you want to, you know, anybody's ever traveled to a big city, Chicago, New York, DC, Atlanta, and you go to one of those transit kiosks and you try to get a ticket. Think of all the hostility designed in that or self-checkout lanes. Yeah. Like I like watching people in self-checkout lanes because I, like, I get glee from watching them be frustrated by, or folks who are like me who just like pop, 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 pop and get out because they're used to the UI. But watching like, who tested that? Who designed it? They probably didn't. Like, what's good friction versus what's bad friction? And so one of the things that we don't do enough is think about when something's not owned by somebody, when an aspect of the design process isn't owned by somebody, inevitably, there are going to be things that get short-shrifted, right? Yeah. And so dark patterns are really just perpetuated things that, like, as you think about different kinds of designs or different kinds of uh, UI patterns, or different kinds of, uh, you know, product designs, somebody didn't own that process. And if you, you, if you create enough of these kinds of things, think of even in the COVID era, think of how initially all these supermarkets started adopting those crazy arrows to tell you which way to go. And like, I don't know who started that, but somebody did it once and then everyone copied it without thinking one thought of like, does this actually work for what we're trying to do? And I'm not saying it doesn't work at all because maybe it was tested and it totally works. But I'm thinking these are the things I want folks as we're as not just designers, but specifically around design to think about why are we doing this? Who does it impact? Is friction good or bad? And then, you know, sort of going from there. So that's kind of been my it's been sort of an evolving rant. It went from me being mad about one thing to thinking more broadly about like, how does this stuff all get ideated? How does it happen? How do we mitigate these challenges for early on? Yeah. And so that's what, honestly, what led me to, after thinking about it for a long time, and I've given probably 20 talks on this in the last two years. And again, it's been building. The talk has been building from like me being like, gee, I wonder if someone else can solve this because it can't be me. <laughs> to realize that, spoiler, nobody wanted to think about this. Or they're thinking about it, but they're thinking about it from different angles. You know, like big companies like Airbnbs, companies are thinking about it from a safety and trust perspective, which is important. But I think that there, we're talking about like micro interactions here. So anyway... Broadly, it led me around thinking about, is there a way to own this? Is there, is there a domain that sort of inhabits sort of off of service design, somewhere between like UX and service design? And earlier this year, I sort of thought about that. And I was like, turns out, I think this is just consequence design. Um, and it's not like people who are going to become consequence designers, because that would be a terrible job title. <laughs> but also hilarious. I think that, that that's sort of where it leads us towards is, is giving it an overarching sort of theme to be able to then go from there. Excellent. And and, and that kind of brings to us, I'd like to hear more about consequence design, what you, how you think it applies in various areas. But, but before we continue, do you like this podcast? Would you like to stop and, and give us a rating? 
review? <laughs> well, I've already given it a five-star rating. I mean, I've already done that. And I subscribe. You know, click here to subscribe. Did that already. Done it. And I don't like subscribing to things. So you know if I subscribe to your podcast, it's, it's real. It's real Dear listener, you heard it here first. Ron Bronson gives us five stars. An endorsement. And so should An endorsement. you. Endorsement. That's it. You can, you can use that, you know. <laughs> JS and I have been talking about how we need to, uh, <laughs> how we need to press for, press for more ratings. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, Come we're going to totally derail this thing in order to ask for your rating. Because that yes. is not in any way a hostile or anti-pattern. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Bringing people <laughs> on the show. Sit them down and say, tell us more about you. Cool. Do you love us? Do you want to be friends with us? Like, Do you, you want know, to be friends? Do you want to be friends? And it's like, I just met you. Like, no. <laughs> I don't want to be your friend. Not too many friends. You know? So one thing that that I'm interested in, because we, uh, you've talked about this a little bit. I think we've had conversations about it as well. I can't remember if it was in a, one of your talks or if it was just in something on, on social media. But there's a level of this that just goes into basic copywriting, right? So, mm -hmm. and that can apply to, that can apply to social media, that can apply to kind of the, you know, micro copy that happens in interactions on websites, and things like that. But I'd, I'd really be interested in hearing your thoughts on where and how you see these anti-patterns and, and consequence design playing out in, in different forms, like not necessarily just in web design, but, you know, online in, the way people craft their own messages, things like that, like where, where that shows up in, in our own daily habits. So it's interesting. I think that you sort of piggyback on a thing that, that I've been thinking about, which is that these are not just digital experiences that this is happening, right? It becomes right. part of our everyday lives. I have this really, I have, speaking of sweets, I have this art, a picture I took years ago at a coffee shop, maybe a year ago at a coffee shop, where, where it was a hand dryer. And somebody wrote these really detailed instructions out for how to use the hand dryer. I took a picture of it and I said, this person doesn't know it, but I wish we could hire them and make them a UXer because they're already doing UX and they don't even know it. The microcopy <laughs> was great. The directions are perfect and exactly worked exactly how they said it was supposed to work. And they did that as an affordance because people who are using this thing weren't able to do it. Probably coming out telling them, especially in a COVID era, right? This is like last year. Like that person deserves a medal. Um, <laughs> and so I think to answer your question, it, it it plays out in everyday life because it's not these are not just digital experiences. We take. We take the things we see in digital experiences and then we, we sort of perpetuate these things in everyday life. We think, oh, well, this is the gold standard. All of us are talking higher ed. All of us have been in a meeting where somebody went on a website somewhere and was like, can't we just copy what they do? Yeah. And then we, we, we proceed to copy whatever Silicon Valley company, typically in most cases, right, did the thing or, or someone else's bugaboo project that they found online somewhere. And now we're perpetuating those same mistakes, those same menus, those same really bad IAs burying content because somebody thought it was a good idea because they well how do we know better than google does well that, yeah it works for google but maybe it doesn't work for what we're trying to do we thought about that we've done the research so i think it i think it's the risk is that people end up thinking that that you know us working in this field that we know yeah yeah this applies to social media in so many regards as this kind of snowball effect of bad content one person sees yeah, I need to quit picking on Canva, but a Canva designed image that's a that's an inspirational quote for Motivation Monday. It, even though nobody ever clicks Motivation Monday at, and, and searches the content on that hashtag, it's not doing any good. It's content for content's sake. But somebody sees that from another university account and thinks, oh, that's what we need to do. Or, or I, I constantly say, you know, 
in meetings, our competitors should not be our role models. Just because other schools in the state are posting this sort of content doesn't mean we should be doing it too. It means that, hey, maybe they're not doing the right thing and we have the opportunity to jump in and do something that helps us stand out or, or, or do the same thing, but in a better way that fits our audience more. So it doesn't, people go on Reddit and ask questions all the time on the UX subreddit. This is my new thing is going on the UX subreddit and just ruining people's lives by going and saying, <laughs> folks ask questions and they go like, and they want you to do their homework for them. So like, how do I do this thing? Give me a long explanation for why I should do user acceptance testing. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where you work. <laughs> do you want to give me your salary to figure it out? I, but I think these are the things people need to think about is like, is like, don't just go to the source. Don't just go to the experts. You figure out your use case, figure out your solution, figure out your problem, write copy and content to your audiences. In my current role, which we won't discuss, but you can Google it. We worked on a project with a, with a very specific government audience. And it was like internal folks. They were not external people at all. And so we made the decision pretty early on in this initiative to write copy that was pretty dense. Not because we thought that that was like a thing you'd want public, you know, you'd want to normally you'd want to use plain language, right? But in this case, the decision was made because we realized, well, the audience are people who are really used to doing this particular kind of way. They understand the subject matter expertise. And if you spend 100 man hours rewriting everything that's in this thing to make it more usable, you're not going to make it usable for them because it doesn't, it won't translate for what they actually need to be. You got to know your audience. And once you understand that, you can design experiences or design solutions that work for that that market when you have a broader audience it's a little bit different but most of the time we have audiences that are you know that we can we can we can sort of understand and and work you know build solutions that that work for them i think a lot of it comes down just back to respect for the other so what are some practices that designers and communicators can build into the ways they think about things and and how we're creating them to to make them more more equitable so i think for one, don't treat them like they're the other. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Don't other don't otherize people. I think that that's a, like is like ooh, bringing it around. But like I, I you know, I, I, I think it's it's super important to understand that that while your audiences are not your friends, they could be your neighbors. That that well, the example I give is is this is this is a couple of years ago. This is kind of the first thing that really got me on this rant. It's the most bizarre thing I'm going to tell you anyway. Joel is going to say he'll know when I when I say it, he'll know. On the back of a Cheerios box, Cheerios are gluten-free now. I'm celiac. When they decided to go gluten-free, the, the, the corporate story they told about this was that this old guy who'd worked there for 30 years named Wilbur or whatever the heck his name was, had a granddaughter who was celiac. And so because of Wilbur's dedication to Cheerios.inc.club, they decided that, that, you know what, we should figure out how to make Cheerios gluten-free. And I thought to myself, instead of this being a heartwarming story to me, I thought, what the hell else about everybody else that doesn't have a grandfather that works at Cheerios.club? <laughs> like, what a scam it is that you got to have somebody in corporate headquarters to be able to get something done right that, that solves, you know, solves for your, your specific problem, this need case, you know, this use case that in this case is pretty prevalent, right? There are tons of millions of people with celiac disease, many who don't even realize it. And so I think bringing it back around to your question about, like, the others, people think, going back to my, my favorite Reddit examples, People think research is as like a nicety, like it's like a bonus. Oh, we do. And for as a treat, you get research. No, like we should lead with it and do iterative research. So you're constantly testing things and you're constantly taking the time and building into when you, you know, when you're designing things, whether it's, whether it's a really low fidelity thing or not, 
that you're getting this feedback from folks constantly. So you're able to figure out where you went right, where you went wrong, what's working, what's not working, being willing to have your assumptions challenged. But too often, you know, it's not even folks who are necessarily individual contributors. It's often like senior leadership who are like sort of mortified by the idea they could be wrong about everything. Or in this case, fine, they're not wrong about everything. They're wrong about this particular thing. And so as a result, we're like, well, we don't want to challenge so-and-so because, you know, highest person, most important person, blah, 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 blah. So I think relating to the higher ed audience, it's a tough line to walk because there is this challenge. But I think in a post-COVID world, right, where like everything is upended, doing that research, finding out how our individual stakeholders, our, our individual institutions, big, small school, what I do at 15,000 size uh, state college is be very different than I do at a liberal arts college with 2,000 students. You know, or a school that's mostly an ag school versus a school that's more liberal arts versus a school that's more business mind, like whatever it is. Like we're gonna have to target our messages in a much more in a smarter way to understand how to a keep the folks we have, right? And hopefully to bring new ones in. Whatever model that is, whether it's online, whether it's on campus, whether it's a hybrid thing. And so I think that this this reality should hopefully wake folks up to we can't just copy what they're doing down the street. We can't just do what our rivals are doing. We need to really hone our message. We need to be, you know, be unique with what we're doing, what we're offering, and then craft experiences and messaging around that, design experiences digitally around that so that we're able to create the engagement we want, but also to maintain what we have because things are going to get worse before they get better. And nobody has any, you know, 1918 is everybody's signpost for what used to happen. Yeah. But higher ed wasn't like it is now in 1918. So we can't look back to what they did in 1918 because what they did in 1918 was not allow women minorities to go to college so like you know we're not we're not going backwards you know despite maybe some folks wanting to so yeah it is what it is well and I, the struggle that i've had as someone that owns an agency that does digital strategy for higher ed is just getting the realization that there does need to be budget put into doing research when you're doing a redesign, but also thought of how you continue to test and continue to research and continue to try things out and make sure that things are working going into it. There, there's still, after decades, this you know latent mindset that when you redesign and you launch the website, it's done. Right. And I, and I don't I don't even think anyone really thinks that. But there is an, an underlying assumption that the things that get changed are well, cool. We're going to update this page content. We're going to put a new homepage image or video up, and we need to have a dynamic thing on the homepage, which ends up being like an events feed or something and stuff that doesn't cater to you know ninety percent of your audience really. And it's it's a little bit it's a little bit dehumanizing, honestly. It's, you're not paying attention to the real people that are interacting with your website or that are interested in your institution, interested in the product you sell, interested in the product you provide or the service you provide. You're just interested in your own internal opinions or the the group think that happens in your organization. And that, uh, yeah, not a not a not a recipe for success going forward for sure. Yeah, well, it's just gonna cost you money. Like, I think that people don't realize it's costing you money. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and you're spending money to cost yourself more money by making bad decisions that you could fix if you just were willing to, like, be open to the possibility. Not that you're not that you're just wrong, but that maybe all of us are wrong. I'm not saying that, oh, junior person is going to have the right idea. Maybe they do. But just that by going and getting, like you said, figuring these things out and finding out, you know, finding out the hard answers is how you're able to move things forward or stop where you are and pivot, 
you know, before it's too late. Yeah. What's well, at these reports that are put out by different organizations or consultancies or whatever? There's great information in those, but they are not the end all be all because they're not looking specifically at your audience. Right. They're not looking specifically at the prospective students or the parents or the current students or the customers or the users of your website, your web property, your product. I mean, honestly, with digital courses and stuff, I'd actually, I think JS also mentioned this uh, last week when we were talking about bringing you on, Ron, was what are your thoughts around how classes have had to go online and how universities have handled all of this with, I mean, they're basically just taking a, a synchronous, you know, lecture-based thing and turning it into a, a giant business meeting over video chat. Like that's... <laughs> It's, you know, again, like there, there isn't, there wasn't thought and to some extent, like you're to leave, you have to leave affordance for the fact that there was not enough time for someone to put a real strategy in place, but you start researching as soon as you possibly can. And you start testing things as soon as you can. And researching, testing, not just looking at what other schools are doing, because basically we, we hit the zoom domino effect of like, okay, one school closed and they went to zoom sessions and boom, zoom, 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 all the way, way down. They didn't even use a different network. Like they just all decided to use zoom, like all of them. Yeah. The private school I coach tennis at in my spare time is also on zoom. And I'm like, did it, y'all know Skype exists. I'm not right. saying you need to use it. I'm just saying like, there's other options. I mean, I've, I've had like, yeah. you have a happy hour with a friend and it's over zoom. Like what happened to, what happened to right. a Google hangout? What happened to a Skype call? What happened yeah. to FaceTime? Sure. I mean, like there's so shout much. Out to where, shout, shout to whereby over here. Yeah. Like, Hello, look at us. <laughs> we rebranded. Yes. Yes, indeed. You should sponsor this podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My thoughts are, I think it goes well. My actual thoughts are the, the last thing higher ed needs is another highly paid person making decisions. But I would say that um, this is where the centralization of like digital strategy across organizations. I remember years ago, I gave a talk at a school that will not be named. That's quite large in the Big Ten. And I remember somebody coming up to me afterwards. This is back when like I was like years before I thought I'd leave higher ed. So this is like a long time. This is like I joke about like for people who are on the call who are like mid-career, early career, like your career can take you places and you don't realize you're going to end up. And so you end up being looking back and going, damn, I didn't know anything back then, but people thought I did. And that was what this was like. I mean, I knew some things, but woof, it was a different time. But anyway, after a talk I gave, it was a really good talk. It was, and, and so I came to me and it's like, yeah, I work at a, you know, a Big Ten school. We've got like, I forget the number, like 100 different people on campus who have you know, their own, own websites, basically, like 100 different webmasters on campus, essentially. Um, and there's no central governance at all for this. And my head exploded. And this is like six, seven years ago. And this is still a thing. The schools are just not are not doing this. And again, the last thing you need is another person's like, you know, like I said, highly paid and doesn't know anything. But I, but I do think that in a world where like a COVID happens, if you have a semblance of governance, if you have some kind of fine, you don't have a person in charge, you've got some coordination as an ad hoc leadership thing where somebody else takes charge for months at a time. Be imaginative. I don't care. But the fact that we didn't have that was really clear in this case because everybody just sort of doing things and the folks making the decisions, maybe it's an IT different decision. Most of us have worked in IT in some form or fashion. So we understand how IT decisions get made. It's very different than digital strategy decisions or very different yeah. than making decisions that are web first or people first or user centered. And so I think you have to have that user centered, in this case, student centered, people centered mindset around how you make these decisions. And the fact that we didn't consider any of that. And now not only did we not consider it then, now we want to extend it into the fall and continue to do it the same way <laughs> without any modification, without any adaptation. 
I mean, the real dereliction here is all these big vendors that are out here. Shout out to the vendors. Love y'all for all the, pen, all the free pens and the drinks <laughs> over the years. But like at the same time, where, where, where is the creativity coming from them in terms of being able to spin up solutions? Yeah. And yeah. I'm not talking about small vendors, but like the point is, is that there's a, there's just, there's a vacuum here in terms of like understanding how to serve audiences at a time that they really need that. Yeah. Like I'm not asking overworked people to make up new things, but I do think that it, it's the disservice there isn't anything other than the students and being sort of like left to figure out, okay, now what? Cause yeah, for the most students, it's fine. But for the folks that are like, you got a 1.7 GPA and now they're telling you to go online to your home where you have an insecure Wi-Fi. Yeah. It's McDonald's doing outside the McDonald's doing your homework yeah. to stay afloat. So you keep your financial aid so you can go to school. Again, these are the user stories. These are the use cases. This is why service design is so important. This is why, like to me, I believe that you know consequences, the consequence design is a part of thinking about the whole life yeah. cycle of this. And we're just, no one's paid to do it. So nobody thinks about it other than maybe in an anecdote. The uh, there, there are so many things within there <laughs> that I want to talk about. Uh, you get it? The Ron Bronson experience. No, and I love the Ron Bronson experience. TM. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, the, the biggest thing so to, to me, you know, that, that popped up, I mean, days after this in my head is just like what was once and probably still is called the digital divide, right? Like your, your students come from very real geographic very like variable geographic areas. They come from various socioeconomic standpoints. They come from different home situations. When we make the choice to force all students to learn online through something like Zoom, that is not a great app, to, like not a great piece right. of software from, from one point, not something that's native on, on every platform, not something that's necessarily easy to use, isn't necessarily accessible, definitely doesn't have closed captioning built into it. And then requiring students to have Wi-Fi or, you know, to find Wi-Fi, you're like to sit outside of a McDonald's and use the McDonald's Wi-Fi, which is terrible. I mean, we saw schools literally with parking lot Wi-Fi, like come park into our parking lot. The Wi-Fi is on if you need it. Like, yeah. But hey, you know what? We've got Zoom backdrops, so. But what if you don't, what if you don't live near campus, right? And what if, what if you're out in the sticks because, Mm You know, because that's the that's you have to go stay with your grandparents because your your parents can't afford to have you home. And you're staying with your grandparents out in the rural Midwest or something, and you have that crappy satellite Wi-Fi. Like, I, there's just there's so many variables, right? And and but I don't know what school. And if you if you work at an institution that did research and and is researching, I definitely want to talk to you. I think JS and I both would love to hear about what you're doing and how you're doing this. And I think it's something that's important and helpful to the rest of the industry for sure. But there, I don't know of any of any institutions that decided to start doing that research and dig in to talk to their, their current students and, and hear what's going on. And it's people like, it's people like Liz and Steve and, and the team at campus sonar that are going out and having to get this information through social listening and social media monitoring versus us going right to the source and asking people directly, asking our own students. Not necessarily that's bad, but the data that they had collected should say, hey, go talk to your students. You need to like it it should be another flag for you to go out and actually start taking care of something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think you you make a really valid point. And I think that this actually this conversations made me think that maybe realize how sort of little information there is about iterative design research in general. Yeah. Um, Not just the like, what is it? But but also like, how do you do it? How does it work? 
Um, how do you do it in sort of a DIY way? Because I think people think of research, you know this, running an agency. JS, surely you know this at work. Like people think research is like labor intensive. They get academic research. So you need all these science signatures and time and it's laborious. And yes, that, but you can also not do that. Yeah. You can also figure out how to create it for the time space you have, you know, and it's again, using it for what you're trying to use it for. Like we're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to write a peer review paper here. We're trying to just get some feedback to be able to move forward on whatever we're doing. But this is making me think that, that there's, there's definitely more of a need for more of these conversations around this, because I think people just may not know how, how to do it in a way that that's scalable for your situation. So Ron, having been out of higher ed for six, five, six years and working on, you know, a lot of other projects far removed, but projects that still affect the general population of people, right? Like in higher ed isn't any different. The, the stuff that we do affects general people like anything does. I'd love to hear, I don't know, any observations that you've had or any, any you know, when you've had a moment to think back to higher ed and, and think about it. And we've had conversations, you know, over the last couple of years. What have, you, what have you noticed that's the same? What things are getting better? And then maybe what kind of sectors or areas or industries could higher ed pay attention to, to improve what they're doing, to get that creative spark or to, you know, to maybe not have to rely on big tech companies to solve their problems for them, that sort of a thing. Well, I'd say that I will be completely honest and say it. The only reason I've spent any real time paying attention to higher ed, besides like our conversations or talking to friends is because I have a teenager who's a, who's a rising sophomore in high school. And so like, I've had to start looking at this stuff again and I'm like, oh, geez, you all have not improved websites at all in the time that I left. This is ridiculous and also kind of hilarious. And, and so I feel like everything's still the same in many ways. Like the sites still have terrible hamburger menus and, you know, sort of buried three, you know, three and four layers of content. And it's hard to find things. And you can't like, I like, who did it? Who's the audience to this main site? You know? And so I think that, so I've noticed that I was sort of surprised by how, how everything's gotten more cookie cutter. I feel like for a while we were able to sort of be creative and try our own things a little bit. Schools were willing to be a little daring and try different things. I think there were a lot more agencies. There were a lot more smaller agencies that were proliferating the space at that time, you know, six years ago. And so I feel like schools were willing to be more creative. And I feel like now there's sort of this McDonaldization of like, of designs of sites. And so even if you're not being designed by sort of whatever the big firms are these days, or if you're doing it in-house, you're still just copying sort of the same, some patterns, which in some level is good, I suppose, when you're, you're copying like patterns that are sort of been already researched. But bad when it's like, I'm not sure how to find things on your site that supposedly you did us work on. Yeah. As far as copy, as far as like where I think higher ed can learn, I feel like it's maybe less about, it's less about industries that are doing it well and more about the tenants. I think the biggest thing that I found with, with being in higher ed versus leaving it, and part of the reason I knew I needed to leave was the more I would go to events in higher ed and go to have, you know, discussions that were very higher ed specific around digital. The language wasn't the same as what I was hearing in like the content strategy, UX, product design spaces outside of higher ed. The language was different. The nomenclature is different. The things they were doing was different. The approaches were different. And so I'm thinking higher ed isn't that specific that you need to be that detached from what the regular world is doing. And the beauty of having been in government for the last five years, from state to local to federal, is that while there are certainly separate spaces, the knowledge that's coming, coming into us. It's coming from the, from the sectors of folks that are doing this work, from the private sector, from the open source of the government space. And so we're getting best practices that are being employed by everybody else, and we're just bringing that to a space that desperately needs it. I think higher ed can learn from that. So learning from the civic tech space of like, how did, you know, 
how do we, you know, how, what's a design system, right? I know some schools are doing this. So we're like yeah. learning how to implement some of these, some of these, some of these higher order tenants. And then from there thinking about how, how to implement things that, that work at the scale that they're at. But I was probably the most fascinating difference when I left higher ed and sort of joined the real world and putting in quotation marks was how different the conversations were and how I didn't have to over explain what I was doing because the work translates whether no matter where, where I'm at. And that's nice. And I'd love higher ed to sort of join that wave of why does the higher, higher, ed, higher ed have product designers? Like you probably could use them at this point, right? Like end to end, full scale, like, yep. you know, full scale. You know, like I, I, why not? Right? Like more UXers doing the kind of work. Like the, the days of the webmaster, the webmaster was dead 10 years ago. It's really dead now. But we're still operating in that paradigm of sort of the single source person, single person of truth, managing all the things. Like governance is important, but I think that you know, that's not the only piece of this. I think that there are other facets that we need to adapt to, to be able to be, able to be nimble enough to when a COVID happens, to have an institution be able to be rapid enough to be able to, to flip on a dime because they understand containerization. They understand how to, you know, understand how to understand, you know, agile design and being able to sort of, oh, we're not on, we're not, we're not on campus anymore. Cool. We can adapt because we're already built for that. That resiliency is already there. We already work cross-functionally, right? We're not in silos. That's the biggest thing too. The other big thing is cross-functionality. Like it's embedded organizationally. If I can, if I can build a cross-functional team in government, yeah. you surely can do it in higher ed. Yeah. Like, like, come on. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about the federal government. I mean, local government. I worked in a town of 60,000 and we built a cross-functional team. There's no excuse for an institution to be able not to do that. I understand the, the, the silos thing. Like people talk about it a lot. They, they mentioned it on the show and you know, hired has, has it. Yes, it does. That doesn't mean you can't be an agent for change. You it doesn't mean you can't reach into a silo next to you and make a, a friend or build a relationship there so that you can start working cross-functionally. They're like, I've, I've done it. <laughs> I've I've done it at, at at two universities. Like it's it, it does take work, and you know, but it's it's something that that makes your own life way easier and produces way better results. Well, thank you so much for listening to episode twelve of the Thought Feeder Podcast. Special thanks to Ron Bronson for being on the show. Thanks, Ron. It was great having you. Seriously, a pleasure. Keep up doing the keep up the good work. It's it's seriously a joy to get to be a part of it. If you want to listen to more similar topics, we've got uh, episode seven that talks about how UX design is going to be the thing that saves higher ed, a small fragment of what we talked about today, and episode nine on higher ed homogeneity, just to give you a little bit more context. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Thought Feeder podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we would appreciate a follow, a subscribe, a rating, a review, whatever you can give us. We are at ThoughtFeedPod on Twitter, and you can also find us at ThoughtFeederPod.com, where all of the episodes are listed and links to every possible subscription service that we are on. Thanks again for listening. Thought Feeder is hosted by Joel Goodman and John Steven Stansel and edited by Joel Goodman. Thought Feeder is sponsored by University Insight.